So I'll read 23 to 29. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would uh, revel in the truth that it reveals not only in our hearts, but in this world. We thank you, Father, for it. And we pray that you would open our minds and have your spirit to guide us by its power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, This text is a little unique as it comes to Psalm 37. In verses 27 through 29, you'll see the word forever three times. And so it appears in every verse. In verse 27, forevermore. In verse 27, forever. They are preserved forever. And then in 29, uh, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. There's only one other occurrence back in verse 18, and it speaks of their inheritance shall be forever. And so each of the forevers in our present text, 27 to 29, is referring to our future as children of God. And so I am always moved by uh, the consideration of how lightly we esteem these terms, like forever. What is forever? If you think, what is forever, what pops into your head? I would say it pops into probably half of our heads. Of course, diamonds. Diamonds are forever. We're a product of our culture. I mean, we're little, we're little uh, absorbers of all of these advertisements that we have. And uh, I was at a wedding this week, and uh, it's interesting to me that... Uh, let me give you a theoretical wedding vow between Adam and Eve, using the traditional wedding vow. I, Adam, take you, Eve, to be my wife, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Or another version would be, until death do us part. What a boring wedding vow, isn't it? So dark. That's not a very happy romantic wedding vow, is it? This would be a wedding vow, I think, written by a romantic. I, Adam, take you, Eve, to be my wife forever. Until the youngest star burning in the furthest galaxy is a mere ember in the night sky. That's how long my love will last for you. So see, I like these traditional wedding vows that are much more biblical, much more practical, until death do us part. It's exactly what Jesus had told us. When the Sadducees came to test him, and they said, whose wife will this woman be in the hereafter, since she knew these seven brothers? And he said, you know neither the power of God nor the scriptures. Just a beautiful rebuke to these people. And so we sometimes elevate this romantic love much farther than it should be. And the reason I bring up the wedding is that there was a song written by the groom and it was entitled Forevermore. Now, I don't know, I didn't really hear the lyrics clearly, but if they were written to his wife about their love, 
then that's just another example of us misappropriating this terminology. Forever is God's. It's not ours. We have no control beyond the death that we have, the death that we die on this earth. And so we have to allow God to have the term forever. We dare not take it upon ourselves, but we can use it as he indicates to us that we're allowed to use it. And that's what this text is about. Now, this portion of text that I read, 27 to 29, I think can be entitled The Righteous Walk with God Forever. The previous version that I read, 23, 4, 5, and 6, I think can be entitled The Righteous Walk with God on Earth. So see, they're contrasted, the previous portion with this portion. And God is conveying to us that our obedience to him is in the here and now, and we will bear uh, good from this, but it's expected of us. We will walk with God in the here and now. And yet he assures us we will walk with God in the hereafter forever. So it's his word to use for our relationship with him. He uses it, not us. And so it's just a beautiful uh, reason that God gives us to continue to distinguish between good and evil. To continue to fight the good fight of faith, which at times on this this earth can just seem like it's not getting us anywhere. It's not getting us what we want. And the more we detach from this understanding of forever, the more deceived we are. And the more Satan can substitute a very poor thing in the place of what we will have with God forever. Now, I have a question for you. Are you past, present, or future-oriented? Of course, when this came to me, I thought, I'll bet the web can tell me this, can't it? You know? And so I went out to the web, and I, and I said, test concerning future orientation. And sure enough, right on the first page, I found a test I could take that assessed my future orientation. And actually, it did all these in one swoop. And so I took this test. It's at a site called Mind Time Maps, and I am oriented, and it has this little triangle, kind of like a Star Trek thing symbol, and you divide it with a, with a thing here, so now you have past, present, and future all divided up neatly, and then they place you somewhere in that grid. I was 30% past, 30% present, and 40% future oriented. I have no idea how they made that determination. When you, answer the thir- when you answer the 13 questions, you answer it along this spectrum of like maybe 30 you know, 30 uh, symbols on this little bar. And I would just say, click, you know, and what do you think about this? And click, and, and then they assessed me. So I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's really perfect. <laughs> but, but then they had this big paragraph that described me. And I read through it, and you come away thinking pretty highly of yourself. They, they d- I, I have a feeling that they write that of everybody. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever known this, but a professor once took a test. He assessed the personality of his students, and he gave them this fairly detailed test. And then he gave them the answers the next day. Oh, I graded your personality test. Here you are. And they're all sitting there, and they're all saying, oh, yeah, this is me, this is me, this is me. They all got the same sheet. So see, as long as someone is saying good things about you, you identify with them. I don't care how different you are from that, that, that test. So now, it reminded me, though, of the fact that... It, now, it, it, they didn't let you go just with the positive. There was this little negative thing. And now anybody in business knows that you don't portray negatives as negatives, right? You portray them as challenges. 
So see, these are positives, these are challenges. So my challenge is, and I thought, well, yeah, this kind of rings true. And here you're not as quick to you know, agree with them. But see, the, the positives were this humongous paragraph, all this wonderful stuff. The challenges, they just gave me three. Probably all I can deal with. So the, the strength of my character is limited to three little things. But one of them was, and in the big flowery stuff, it says that I'm like a, a peacemaker or whatever, a facilitator. I, I tend not to take sides. And I thought, well, okay, th- that's true. At work especially. I mean, I, I find it hard to get passionate about certain things at work. Whereas I work with people that seem to be passionate about everything. They'll argue about anything. You know, it should be this instead of that. We should have new lines for this or that. You know, just silly stuff. And I thought, well, yeah, that kind of does describe me. But I thought, in other contexts, no. I mean, theology, creationism, I argue with everybody. I I don't let anybody, you know, get away without arguing with them. So it has to do with the context. What are you passionate about? So, for instance, um, in another book that I'm reading, it talks about birth order. And we've all read about this birth order. We all know about this birth order. The oldest is the one that takes the chances, is the one that's responsible and all this stuff. And what's interesting is, yes, in the family. But once you get outside of the family, it means nothing. The firstborn, the lastborn, it doesn't matter. And yet in the family, they kind of, you kind of revert to these roles that you fulfilled in your family. And yet outside of your home, it means nothing. And see, that's how quick we are to not adapt to the context. You must realize the context. And that's what brings me back to this text. Remember, past, present, and future. So you always have to keep the context. Do I live in the 40% in the future? I don't know. I, I don't know what that test was really evaluating. But I know this, that anybody can err in doing any one of these wrong. You can live in the past in a very bad way. You can live in the future in a very bad way. You can live in the present in a very bad way. So you have to, in the context of past, how do you use the past? Do you use it to obsess over how good things were? To obsess how, oh, I wish it was like that again. That's a bad way, right? How do you use the past? You use it to drive your decision-making in the present and the future. I did that once. I burned myself. I'm not going to do it again. So see, that the past helps to educate us on what we did right, what we did wrong. And yet that's really it. You don't want to obsess over the past and try to relive it. Now, everybody is nostalgic to some degree. I am. I've been scanning in pictures. I saw that uh, Dave Lane, I commented on a picture he scanned in of him helping his uh, uh, family build a cabin. I mean, we love this. But there can be this unhealthy obsession with the past. And largely because we don't really want to live in the present and the future. We don't want to go there. So David here always kept a balance and a proper future focus. What is it about the future that you should do? What is a good living for the future? So a good living for the future is this. God wants us to be motivated to obey him because of a future orientation. That's very clear from scripture. It's what Jesus said. 
You are laying up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. That is a motivator for us to be faithful, to do good things. I remember, and I've mentioned this before, but I remember talking to a believer, and I think he was a believer, maybe cultural, but in the service when I was in, and I was a new young believer, and I'm all psyched for the Lord, and I'm a Jesus freak, and, uh, and I'm telling him about how there are many mansions in heaven, and, and they're all different sizes. He was offended at this. Now, this guy was a, a, a vowed hater of communism. But isn't that what communism believes, that everybody's going to live in the same, you know, identical shack over in Russia? And yet, here he is trying to say that that's the way heaven's going to be like. Everybody's going to have, like, a condo, you know, in heaven. I'm like, no. I said, I don't deserve to live like other people have lived. I see these uh, victors of the faith. So, see, a future orientation that Jesus is trying to awaken within us is that where you are in heaven will be dictated in large part upon where you are now here on the earth. How much do you pour yourself out for me? I don't believe that's where we'll remain in heaven. Of course, heaven is filled with time and we will fill heaven and we will continue to progress. But there is a degree to which where we begin is, is based on what we've done here on the earth. Our works go with us into heaven. They don't get us into heaven. But they will, in a sense, be our starting point in heaven. And, and Jesus told us that. Lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. And so that's what this is all about. This is about sticking with it because there's a reward for sticking with it. It's not salvation, but it is reward and it's tangible. It's tangible on this earth and it's tangible in heaven. I don't know what it will be, but I know it's real. God's word says it's real. Now, the interesting thing about looking at past, present, and future is that this obviously is also past, present, and future. We look at the table into the past to see what Christ did for us. And here we are today at this moment in time in the present admitting our need of God's grace. And when we come to this table, we partake of that grace. We submit ourselves to God and we say, God, help me. I need help. I am weak in and of myself and future because we know this is a poor substitute for the actual presence of Christ that we will experience when we get to heaven. As blessed as this is to partake in, as much as God wants us to do it, it is a substitute, a proxy for Jesus Christ himself, and we will dwell in his presence forever. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this, your word, that draws us uh, close to yourself, that reveals truth to us, uh, both here on this earth and in our hearts, in our minds, where we so often live, where we ruminate, where we choose to obey or choose to disobey. And we thank you, Lord, that your word can structure and protect our minds just as it can our lives here on this earth. And so we pray, Lord, that you would send the, your Holy Spirit uh, and grant us a grace that we can, in the week ahead, overcome temptation and fight against sin uh, to lay up greater treasure in heaven through obedience. We thank you now, Lord, and ask you to bless this to our bodies and bless our bodies to your use. In Christ's name, amen.